You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. I'll just give the briefest of introductions. We have Professor Aristotle Taudis, who um, is a visiting lecturer in European Studies at the Jackson School of International Studies and has um, been a presenter for many of our events, both for RECAS and for CWES, so we're very happy to have her here again. And then we have the Honorary Consul of the Republic of Poland in Seattle, Teresa Indelak Davis. Correct. Uh, who was uh, appointed Honorary Consul in September 2014. Longtime resident of Seattle, she's been an active member of the Polish-American community, served as president of the Polish-American Chamber of Commerce Pacific Northwest. There's more. Obviously, she's had a very long uh, career. Um, if, if it's okay if I cut it short, yeah, I'd like to just go ahead to the first presentation. And please join me in welcoming our next presenter. Um, so I'm going to shift gears a little bit from that sort of richly detailed informational heavy, you know, con information heavy content presentation that um, my colleague Professor Pfaff was so brilliant at to a much more impressionistic and thematic uh, presentation approach. I only have 20 minutes. I'm hoping to keep myself to that. Um, that I hope will also be maybe useful for your teaching. So I'd like to um, begin with my framing question, namely, how, to, how is Eastern Europe situated with respect to the migration crisis? And I thought a good place to start would be media representations, um, because in contrast to American media, which tends to look at the migration crisis largely through the lens of what is happening in Italy and Greece, and then, you know, with commentary on why the EU can't get its act together, um, usually driven by frustrated UN officials that are often quoted in, in, in American accounts, we don't really get a sense of what's the, what the East European position is. In contrast, however, West European media, European media in general, is paying more attention to the East European dimension. Uh, they are paying more attention to the, uh, the Western Balkan route now um, of, of migration as more interdiction is taking place in the Mediterranean. Um, migrant, migrants and traffickers have been moving uh, people through uh, the Balkans, so that's been made note of. But more than that, there's also uh, been um, attention paid, critical attention paid, to the role of East European leaders um, of member states in the EU and, and the extent to which they represent an obstacle to progress in achieving a viable solution to the migration crisis. And that was reflected in the Economist piece that I highlighted for you on uh, the East Europeans as the new awkward squad. So. Um, I, I, I wanted to highlight that article not just because of its focus on Eastern Europe, not just because of its um, uh, labeling the East European leaders as obstructionist or obstacles along the path to a solution, but I also wanted to point out uh, the more subjective content of these kinds of media representations of East Europeans and what and how they situate the East Europeans not just as obstructionists but also as untrustworthy right you know these old fears amongst West Europeans emerging about East Europeans being fair weather friends and not really in it for the long haul or just in it for themselves when it comes to EU policy making 
Um, and also this, this sort of uh, implication of East European irrationality, right? And that the final sentence sort of highlights that, oh, uh, you know, Slovakia taking maybe 100 refugees, that's going to lead to a plummeting of, you know, pro-EU sentiment amongst the population. You know, how can that be possible? That must just be simply irrational on the part of East Europeans to be so hyperly concerned about a few hundred um, people. So where does this sort of subjectivity come from, this, this assessment of the East Europeans, um, of their political leadership as obstructionist, and then of the populations uh, as being um, untrustworthy and um, irrational and sort of irrationally phobic? It has some deep historical roots or some roots in European historical experience. The historian Mark Mazover in his this very short piece, I highly recommend it, um, traces the evolution of uh, the first international minority rights regime, which emerged uh, in Europe um, after World War I. Some of you who are historians are probably familiar with this. Uh, with respect to the newly independent countries of um, Central and Eastern Europe that were deemed to be incapable of managing their minority problems on their own. So they were subject to the scrutiny of an international surveillance regime um, under the um, heading of the League of Nations. Interestingly, this was not a universal regime as the West European powers exempted themselves from uh, this uh, scrutiny, saying we are civilized. Uh, we know how to treat and integrate our minority populations. We do not need this kind of surveillance. Instead, we need to um, in, uh, inflict it on the East Europeans. Poland was especially singled out. Poland at the time was a very heterogeneous society. It is now probably, according to some analysts, the most homogenous society in Europe. So it's a huge and radical change. Um, so elements, interestingly, uh, of this um, uh, minority rights protection regime were resurrected during the accession process to EU membership. The Central and East European candidate countries were also subject to a minority rights uh, regime, uh, um, which was sort of um, uh, pushed along by the European Commission, but um, more specifically by the Council of Europe and the OSCE as well. So these international organizations paid close attention to what was going on, especially in the Baltic countries, Latvia and Estonia, with respect to Russian minorities. But you know, across the region, the candidate countries were, were uh, monitored for their performance uh, with respect to minority rights and integration. So what has um, endured from these historical experiences, the League of Nations and then how it was resurrected during the accession process, is not the surveillance regime. That has largely been dismantled with membership. Once you're in the EU, you are no longer subject to that kind of, of critical scrutiny. There are no mechanisms uh, of enforcement left um, that can be uh, directed against you should you violate uh, minority rights norms. Um, but what has endured is this impression, the subjective impression of a divided Europe. When it comes to minority rights and integration, we have the civilized West um, and the uncivilized East, that the Eastern European territory is still uncivilized and that we, assu we assume that they are chronically, uh, that they remain somewhat unevolved with respect to minority rights and integration um, and that they are backward, they haven't changed much um, and that they uh, represent sort of a, a problem that the West Europeans have to deal with as they deal with the migration crisis on a whole. So with that historical context in mind and the subjective legacy of that historical context, when West Europeans see um, statistics like this, 
uh, that the independent nicely put together using Eurostat EU uh, statistics, when they see where the East Europeans are largely located um, mm -hmm. in terms of their acceptance of asylum seekers uh, per, uh, especially per percentage of population, um, it sort of reinforces, they, they don't read this as neutral facts, they read this as reinforcing information that the East Europeans are in fact uncivilized. Um, and then, of course, you have popular uh, public opinion polls like this about Poland, uh, you know, done, you know, by Polish sociologists, by the way. So Poland, you know, Polish intellectuals and, and, and social civil society activists are very active and aware that their society, you know, that people in their society need to be confronted with um, multiculturalism, uh, increasingly pluralistic uh, and racially plural society. Um, but, you know, when West Europeans see this, they go, aha, they say, oh, the Poles, you know, they, they are, you know, oh, we had their problem we saw their problems um, in you know after World War one so they're back at it in effect um, Hungary the wall right again when West Europeans see this information about Hungarian um, Hungary building the wall uh, along the border with Serbia um, and the anti-immigration campaign that the um, uh, Orban regime mounted to go along with the construction of the wall, uh, the uh, sort of na other what sort of nasty things that the regime has been doing, which have been um, documented in the Sobchak piece, which I think I also um, I, uh, uh, provided. Uh, it's on your, your flash drives. Um, you know, again, West Europeans can easily reach the conclusion that the territory of Eastern Europe remains uncivilized. Even those countries in the EU, like Hungary, are having a continue to have problems uh, with uh, minorities, with asylum seekers, um, and with the problems of integration in general. I think this seems too easy a conclusion to draw, however, that the best way to situate East Europeans is as obstructionist and as uh, populations that have a perennial problem with uh, minorities and integration. And it's too easy a conclusion to draw for two reasons. Uh, one is that the obstructionist, um, oh, by the way, oh, sorry, the, the, um, these are very interesting. Uh, uh, you know, sort of video YouTube uh, reports on the difficulties faced by the West, by migrants to the Western Balkans and into Hungary. Indeed, I think, you know, with your students, it might be an interesting um, challenge to ask them to uh, canvas their social media landscape and pull out, you know, try to create like a video catalog of, you know, these kinds of reports by Associated Press and Reuters, uh, um, Vice News uh, documentaries. There is a lot of very powerful visual documentary evidence that I think is, is it, the, the risk is that it's ephemeral, right? It, it'll appear on YouTube for a while, and then as this crisis disappears, we won't be able to find this. Mm -hmm. So for your students to actually go about cataloging uh, these these visual documentations of what is happening now would I think be very exciting and very useful too if that could somehow be captured, uh, let's say, and left left in your libraries. Um, so again, when West Europeans see these reports of you know how difficult uh, these migrants are, how badly they're being treated in countries like Serbia and Hungary, again this sort of creates this uh, reinforcing impression of the East Europeans as uncivilized which I think is too easy a way to situate the East Europeans for two reasons. One is that the East Europeans may be obstructionist, but we have to understand that they may have valid reasons for being obstructionist. Mm -hmm. So the Hungarian government, for example, in opposing uh, mandatory resettlement quotas, 
uh, did so uh, largely on the basis that there was that Hungary was already facing um, more uh, refugees than even Italy in the same time period, um, and was getting little to no assistance from the EU and little to no attention um, in the broader sort of international arena. So we, you know, if we see the East Europeans being labeled as obstructionists, we have to try and dig a little deeper to find out, you know, what are their concerns. And in this case, this analyst suggests that Hungary may have had valid concerns. Um, the other reason I'm skeptical of these West European uh, sort of media representations, sometimes accompanied by political commentary that's negative or hostile towards Eastern Europe, is that there has been a tendency to blame Eastern Europe and the Eastern enlargement for a whole raft of problems that have been besetting the EU since 2004-2007. Almost everything that the EU has been challenged with, some commentator, some media representation will lay it back to enlargement. You know, that was the wrong thing to do. We've let in too many poor uh, and, and uncomfortable countries, uncivilized countries, and now we're paying the price. This um, narrative it has not been dying down and, in fact, has been reanimated with Russian actions in Ukraine, right? Because many West Europeans feel that we wouldn't be having a problem with Russia, we wouldn't have sanctions against Russia, our businesses wouldn't be suffering if we hadn't enlarged to Poland and then Poland got, you know, was meddling in Ukrainian affairs and has now been pushing us to take a harsher position on Russia because of their uh, sympathies towards uh, Ukraine and their anti-Russian sentiment. So um, even the Eurozone crisis, believe it or not, has been laid at the door of the East Europeans and enlargement. No less a figure than the former German foreign minister, Joschka Fischer, wrote a commentary in which he blamed enlargement for the Eurozone crisis. How this worked is like, I, I, I can't even, I don't even remember how he made the linkage. It was so ridiculous. Um, the other linkages are, are more plausible. Still, I have to say that factually, all of these linkages, these negative associations between enlargement and undesirable outcomes have been factually disputed. Polls do not uh, you know, undermine the British welfare state. They pay into it. Um, you know, the enlargement has not, the um, bringing of these poor economies into the EU has not harmed the overall economic strength of the EU. It has, in fact, increased GDP uh, in Western Europe because of investment um, and, and labor productivity from Eastern Europe. So factually, almost all of this can be disputed, but it remains such a powerful narrative <coughs> in the EU which really suggests that enlargement is still very much a contested um, uh, 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 event um, and, and a very emotional event as well that is still being digested. So given that, uh, that that's the case, we need to be think more carefully about what is really driving uh, East European responses to the migration crisis. We can't just take West European uh, uh, commentary and media representations uh, at face value. So, uh, I would suggest a different sort of approach to thinking about the East European perspective. First, the historical context. Um, and in here, I'm, I'm specifically interested in the legacies of empire. And that might be something that's uh, intriguing for your class. Uh, if you are historians, um, this might be something to, to look at, how the different um, experiences with empire shape contemporary responses to migration uh, across Europe. Um, secondly, regional differentiation. I think there is a strong case to be made that Central and Eastern Europe is more like Western Europe than West Europeans like to um, accept. 
that this is not a region that needs to be sort of perennially abstracted from the rest of Europe. Um, it, they, it has the same sort of flaws as Western Europe, the same sorts of successes as Western Europe, also in dealing with minority integration. So there's a good case to be made that Central and Eastern Europe is no longer a separate category. Uh, it should be one Europe uh, with, you know, successes and failures um, that you can look at uh, in your class uh, with, with respect to individual countries and how they approach minorities, asylum, and integration. There is, however, a case to be made that the Western Balkans remains exceptional. Um, that because of the legacies of war uh, that are still very present in the region, uh, that this is a particularly disadvantaged part of Europe um, and, is, uh, and that is uh, reflected in the treatment of um, migrants as they traverse uh, the Balkan territory. Um, another thing to keep in mind for your classes is that the migration crisis is part and parcel of a larger set of crises that are bedeviling the Europeans um, and it cannot really easily be isolated. Uh, so if the Lithuanian president at a recent uh, European Council summit meeting said to the uh, Italian prime minister, go F yourself basically in polite language, uh, when he was insisting on mandatory quotas for you know, redistributing asylum seekers, um, she did so because the Italians were resisting the sanctions against Russia. So she said, you know, if you're not showing solidarity with us and the assault that we feel we're under by Russia, then why should we pay attention to what you want because you're under you're being besieged by um, migrants crossing the Mediterranean? You know, it was a tit for tat thing. So these crises are very much interrelated and cannot be seen in isolation from um, from from one another. Um, and finally, if the East Europeans are not the obstacle or the obstructionist presence um, as depicted, then what are the real problems to finding a viable solution to the migration crisis? And there are some hints uh, from the literature that I have there. So because I'm running out of time, or will soon be running out of time, um, you know, here is sort of foreshadowing my conclusion. You know. Um, and I, and, I, and I have some, some sort of th some impressionistic evidence to support this as to why I believe the Central and Eastern Europeans have in many ways escaped their unfortunate past uh, in which they did have problems uh, you know, integrating minorities and, and treating minorities. There's no doubt about it, but I think since uh, in the decades since the collapse of communism, they have redeemed themselves, as it were, and are very much sort of on par with the rest of Western Europe in terms of maybe civilized con conduct or, or si attempting to maintain civilized standards. So. Um, the legacies of empire, um, this to me is always, I think some of you who have been to my presentations before know that I'm sort of uh, big on this. Um, this is, I think, an interesting way to juxtapose the historical context, and it, and it makes much more sense to me than simply sort of going back to the League of Nations and, and, and the minority rights regime that the East Europeans were subject to, and, and, and then using that to sort of question their, their current uh, capabilities and capacities with respect to minority integration. Um, there is no doubt that the legacies of empire have left behind different residual effects. So just a couple of takeaway points to emphasize here. If we think about the situation in Eastern Europe, what we have to emphasize is um, the first, uh, the extent to which minorities were protected by imperial powers, but also manipulated by imperial powers. 
um, the famous divide and conquer uh, uh, strategy of, of empires, right? So you set the minority, you, you set, you privilege the minority population, you set them to govern or rule over the, or rule, you know, in your name over the majority population, and thereby you create friction and resentment between minority and majority populations. A second strategy that's less well known, but <coughs> very important for Eastern Europe, is demographic change. The Russian and Soviet empires were particularly good at this. Uh, by depopulating regions and then repopulating them, uh, they created or engineered minority minority majority uh, tensions and conflicts. Uh, the legacies of which we see in the Baltic republics, but we also see in the frozen conflicts with jo in Georgia, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, and uh, to a lesser extent Transnistria. So that is a very important thing to keep in mind that minorities. Um, the East European experience, historical experience with minorities and with the inflows and outflows of people are associated with trauma and imperial domination. So when the commission says we are going to, we, we advocate for a mandatory, you know, distrib distribution of asylum seekers, that has traumatic resonance. You know, this is sort of the imperial center saying, you will take these people. Um, and and I, you know, I, I don't want to make too much of that, but, but there is, you know, we have to sort of understand and appreciate that minorities can be celebrated in East European societies, cultures, and histories, but there's also a certain set of sort of traumas associated with the presence of minorities associated with the imperial past. Um, a second takeaway point is that although ethno-nationalism becomes a dominant political ideology in opposing imperial rule, um, it is not as pervasive as we might think. Historians, um, uh, sociologists, uh, I have some sources here, uh, suggest that the actual identities of East Europeans themselves, the ordinary, quote-unquote, ordinary people, are much more fluid and flexible <laughs> Uh, much more rooted in local and regional identities than in ethno-nationalism. So, for example, left to their own devices, East Europeans privilege their villages, they privilege their region, perhaps. They don't necessarily immediately say, we are, you know, we, we are Poles above all, or, or, or we are, you know, they might instead say, we are Carpathians, you know, as, as a region. Um, and, and so that is uh, something that we have to keep in mind, that ethno-nationalism is not the default setting. It is an engineered identity um, and a manipulated identity as well uh, by local elites. And the third takeaway point, of course, from the East European experience is the experience of emigration. Empires are not very good vehicles for economic development. Uh, economic backwardness is the norm. Uh, that leads to labor surpluses, which has historically have meant that these countries have been countries of emigration, not immigration. Um, and that, that continues to be the dominant experience. So uh, that society is, is aware of, uh, given the, the wave of emigration that accompanied enlargement, uh, the emigration to Western Europe specifically. So that is, those are three takeaway points, the, 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 the pres presence of minorities, but the association of minorities with trauma, uh, the presence of ethno-nationalism, but also the um, qualification that ordinary people see themselves in much more, uh, in much more fluid and complex ways, um, and the larger experience of emigration and immigration that has certainly had an impact that is worth discussing with your classes. Um, and how and specifically it contrasts with the West European experience, which again, we're mostly fami more familiar with, especially the linkages between former colonial powers and their colonies. There is greater familiarity, greater uh, shared languages, shared cultural reference points, 
um, so that the, 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 the strangeness of sub-Saharan African migration or migration from Muslim countries is reduced. The cultural distance, although it's there, is far less in Western Europe uh, because of the imperial past that, of, of West European powers um, and their meddling on a global scale than in Eastern Europe. Um, and, and I think that the, the thing, important thing to also as a legacy of empire to keep in mind is the immigrant networks themselves. So when immigrants to, uh, come to Eastern Europe, they don't, certainly don't want to stay there because they have networks and connections and settlement patterns that take them back to their former colonial powers. Um, they know French or they know English. They don't want to stay in benighted Hungary. I mean, you know, for them, it's 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 completely unfamiliar territory. Um, so uh, that's you know a, a, a thing that I think also plays into uh, the problems. You know, when West when East Europeans say, oh, so you want to mandatorily allocate um, asylum seekers? How do you want us to keep them here? Do you want to put them under lock and key? You know, do you want us to like? guard them day and night because, you know, they are going to want to leave um, and they're going to end up with you anyway, unless we, you know, really subject them to a very harsh um, uh, regime of control. So um, that is, I think, a, a sort of an interesting place to, you know, start mm -hmm. historically. Uh, now, in spite of this history, I would submit that there is plenty of evidence that the Central and East European countries, as I said, in the last decades have worked hard to overcome their problematic history with respect to minorities and the integration of minorities. So I have here just some brief impressionistic um, examples. In terms of political maturity of the East Europeans, I don't think there's any better example than the Velvet Divorce of Czechoslovakia. Um, that, I think, is something that the, um, the, the parties have not been given adequate credit for. It could have been uh, handled violently, it could have been handled in a far messier way, but they went about it in a very sort of civilized way, negotiating um, an exit that satisfied both the Slovak and Czech uh, sides. In terms of political, sorry, this came out so soft, political integration. Um, the political integration of minorities uh, in Eastern Europe, in Central and Eastern Europe, is really, really commendable and, and in large part unexpected given the history. Uh, you see the extent of this political integration in the election of high officials. So the mayors, for example, of Tallinn and Riga, the capitals of Latvia and Estonia, are either ethnic Russian or associated with the Russian, uh, the party that represents Russian interests. Imagine this is their capital cities. It's as if the mayor of Paris were Algerian. It's not such a stretch. I mean, you know, we hope to see that one day. Uh, but but it's as if the mayor of Paris, the elected mayor of Paris, were an Algerian, uh, French-Algerian, rather than, um, you know, uh, just purely French. So um, the election of the Romanian president, I know uh, not many people might follow Romanian politics, but this was an earth shaker. We have a Protestant German who is a, um, a Protestant German elected last year as the president of Romania. Um, a country that is not given, you know, big points for, you know, mm -hmm. on the on the scale of civilized uh, to, from uncivilized to civilized. So uh, that was a shocker, and, it, and again, it was a sign of political maturity. Um, uh, another sign is the presence uh, across the region of parties that represent ethnic minority interests, and nowhere again is this more unexpected than Bulgaria. Uh, since um, the collapse of communist rule in uh, Bulgaria, we have had a party representing Turkish rights, but uh, and, and interests, but not only Turkish. Uh, ethnic Turkish. Um, it's called the Movement for Rights and Freedoms. Um, for almost most of the 2000s, 2000 to 2010, they were actually part of the coalition government. 
or the you know revolving door coalition governments. Bulgarian politics is nothing if not corrupt and messy, uh, but they're part of it, right? They they are central figures in it. They they are part of the spoil, the distribution of spoils. They are not excluded. They are not outside. If you know Bulgarian history with respect to ethnic Turks, uh, this is a remarkable achievement. Um, so uh, so the, again, something I wanted to draw your attention to: political responsibility. If West Europeans feel a sense of historic and political responsibility towards former colonies, which is very laudable and helps to explain a lot of the commentary that you know accompanies the need uh, for Europeans to do better with respect to current um, asylum seekers and refugees, in, in East and Central Europe, there is also a sense of political responsibility. It's just not towards Sub-Saharan Africa and, and, the, and the Middle East. It's towards other fellow East Europeans. So Poland, for example, now is home to between 300 and 400,000 people displaced from Ukraine. Do, does Poland get credit for this? Does anyone pay attention? No. Um, that's because the Poles themselves are not, you know, this is just natural. Uh, Lithuania hosts uh, uh, Belarusians in exile, including this lovely little university. The, the, it's a very sweet website of a, of a Belarusian uh, intellectuals and university in exile, and this, they are hosted and, and funded in part by Lithuania, but also other EU uh, 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 sources of funds. So there is a sense of political responsibility in the region as well. It's just not perhaps directed at those parts of the world that are uh, that are most pressing for West European concerns. Um, in terms of cultural integration, uh, here's a sort of an interesting. Uh, quotation from a scholar of European Islam, uh, in which he notes the successes of uh, integrating Muslims in Lithuania. You may not know, but Poland and Lithuania are at home to indigenous Muslim populations. It's a very tiny uh, Crimea, uh, so not Crimean, uh, it's a very tiny Tatar population, uh, but it is nonetheless there and has been there for centuries and is lauded as a success by this in terms of integration, cultural and political integration, social integration as well. So this is an interesting. Um, Idea, you know, this idea that they, that the Poles and Lithuanians have are success stories in integrating their indigenous Muslim populations. It's sort of at odds with the previous slide uh, that documents Islamophobia and racism in Poland. So how how would we, you know, reconcile those? According to Polish sociologists, um, Islamophobia in Poland is real, but it's not directed at their indigenous, uh, tiny indigenous Muslim population. It is directed more at um, an equally small uh, uh, community of, of, of newly arrived Muslims. Uh, but according to Polish sociologists, Islamophobia in Poland, we might extend this to the rest of East Central Europe, is an imported phenomenon. Um, it, is not, it, does, it does not reflect realities on the ground in East Central Europe. It's imported from Western Europe as East Central Europeans sort of um, digest a, a number of things happening in Western Europe. First is the failure of West European integration models. Multiculturalism has been deemed dead, uh, and it's been very visibly declared dead by um, uh, the leaders of the Netherlands, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, David Cameron, have all given very high-profile speeches saying that multiculturalism as a model of assimilation or integration has not worked. The East Europeans are saying, well, if the West Europeans couldn't figure this out as the civilized Europeans, you know, what are we to make of this? Secondly, the radicalization of West European Muslims. Of course, this is news everywhere and, and a source of concern. So East Central Europeans, not knowing that much about the Muslim communities since they have very tiny ones, um, are concerned about the problems of radicalization. And third, the very visible and dramatic acts of terrorism that have taken place in Western Europe, especially the t attack on uh, Charlie Hebdo. This was an attack on free speech, with the East, which, as, as Professor Faf pointed out, is dear, near and dear to the hearts of West Europeans, but it's almost more near and dear to the hearts of East Europeans who lived under communist censorship. 
So the idea that communist censorship should somehow be replaced by uh, the censorship or self-censorship associated with Islamic sensibilities is a very difficult one for them to navigate. Um, and other things that might be, you know, other examples, and I'll be very quick on this, um, that might attract the attention of your students. Uh, these are, this is a, a remarkable exemplary individual. Um, does, does anyone know, have, have heard of uh, Mustafa Naim? He was actually one of the leaders of the Euromaidan <laughs> protest. He is an Afghan-born uh, journalist uh, <coughs> living in Ukraine. Uh, completely integrated into Ukrainian society to the point where when he tweeted uh, on the first night of repression, when he tweeted that you know a few tens of students who were on the Euromaidan were rounded up, when he gave the tweet and, and gave the call for people to come out to the Euromaidan, thousands upon thousands responded. Now, in what other country would that have been the case where someone named Mustafa Naim sends out a tweet saying, hey, you know, we're being rounded up on the square, come out and support. So I think um, not only is he an exemplary leader of the Euromaidan, who is now um, an elected official in the Ukrainian parliament, uh, elected uh, uh, parliamentarian, um, but all of Ukraine's minority populations, the J Jewish population, the Crimean Tatar population, the Belarusians, the Georgians, all supported the Euromaidan protests and were all welcome. So I think that's a great example of a, a, a way of integration of minorities that has perhaps not received adequate attention. And finally, perhaps there's no better example of the progress of Central East Europe, of Central and East European countries along the path of, of civilizing themselves, if you will, or, or being civilized to West European standards with respect to minorities and minority rights uh, than this uh, figure who was my colleague at the University of Berkeley. Um, he was, when he's a Latvian uh, politician and uh, academic, uh, he served um, during the accession period as the Minister for Integration of Minorities um, in Latvia. So he was the student or the, 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 the pupil that was under the Council of European tutelage when it came to how Latvians should properly integrate uh, and, and endow their minority Russian population with rights. Well, he is now the Council of Europe's commissioner for human rights and is doing a very good job. Um, his <coughs> reports, he visits all European countries and issues human rights <coughs> reports, including um, how they treat their minority and asylum-seeking populations. Great resource for your students. Um, wonderfully written, very clear, gives them an, a basis upon which to compare countries too, so that they can sort of compare East European with uh, West European um, uh, outcomes in this regard. So I would conclude that uh, the East Central Europeans are neither better nor worse than the West Europeans. Uh, they have glaring failures with respect to minority rights and the protection of asylum seekers, but so too do the West Europeans. They have neo-nationalist, xenophobic political parties and tendencies, but so do the West Europeans. If the East Europeans are the awkward squad, there's no more awkward moment in the recent history of interaction between uh, European leaders and yeah. asylum seekers than this. You've, you're probably familiar with this. Yeah. This went viral. Uh, the world's most powerful woman reduced to, um, you know, stunned into silence, literally, when this lovely, I think she's a Palestinian, Palestinian. Lebanese or a Palestinian refugee, this girl spoke fluent German after yeah. only four years yeah. in Germany, absolutely brilliant German, and she, you know, challenged the chancellor on some, chancellor was saying some nonsense about, you know, we can't take everybody, you know, so sorry, and she broke into tears saying that, you know, she wants to go to university and, and she wants to stay. Um, and it, 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 was, it, was, it was a touching moment, but I think it really brought to light that awkwardness is a shared problem across Europe when it comes to dealing with, these, with this crisis. 
Um, attacks, uh, you know, just some links here. If uh, you know, we we know plenty of, of of we know plenty about the poor treatment of asylum seekers and migrants uh, in Eastern Europe. But um, again, you know, we have the, the glaring example of Calais, the jungle of Calais. Uh, we also have this report in Germany, uh, arson attacks against refugee homes are on the rise and across Germany. This is a very troublesome development, doesn't receive that much attention, but it, it's, it's very problematic. Um, and then sort of the general attitude amongst uh, West European politicians is very similar to that of East European politicians. Uh, this is a recent open letter published in the Telegraph by the ministers of interior, I believe, of both France and the UK. The, 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 the tag, migrants think our streets are paved with gold. So let's disabuse them of that. You know, let's, let's mount a campaign to tell them, you know, hey, we, we don't have it so good, so, so, so leave us alone. Um, all right, very uh, quickly, Western Balkans, how are they qualitatively different? If I'm saying that the best way to situate Central and Eastern Europe is not to divide it so much from Western Europe, but to consider it part of Western Europe in terms of the range of both positive and negative responses to the problems of migration, um, minorities, and, and, and the integration of said minorities, uh, there is a case we made that the Western Balkans is different, um, that the regional differentiation is an important thing to, to make note of um, in your classes. I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say that with the Western Balkans, we are dealing with failed states, with criminalized economies, with deeply corrupt elites that are incapable of protecting their rights of their own citizens, let alone the rights of migrants and asylum seekers and refugees that traverse their territory. So um, the Amnesty International report uh, needs to be set against that context. So yes, of course, these rights are there. They are flagrant. You know, the, the brutality with which people are being treated as they traverse the Balkans is a human rights um, uh, crisis in, in, in many ways. But as scholars have pointed out, these crises, these, this, the mistreatment of individuals is very much linked to failed states. When you have corrupt local officials who don't, you know, police the traffickers or, in fact, involved in trafficking networks, when you have uh, elites, uh, political elites who are more interested in dividing spoils and in um, foment, you know, fomenting um, ethno-nationalism as a way of legitimating uh, their power and, and, uh, you know, keeping their maintaining their electoral base, we are not dealing with very good circumstances. So the Western Balkans lacks the both the political capacity, but also the, the, the sort of institutional, the structural, the bureaucratic capacity to deal with what is happening here. Uh, their position is made more difficult by the fact that they are caught between conflicting imperatives. According to the UN, they must hold uphold international standards for the humanitarian treatment of displaced individuals. The irony here is, of course, that these international standards fail to protect them right, during the Balkan Wars or the, the wars of secession of the, in, in Yugoslavia. We just celebrated the Sarbanitsa, or the wrong word, commemorate, commemorated the Sarbanitsa genocide. So it's very much, it's very fresh in the minds of, of many people across the Balkans that here you had the UN safe haven that failed to provide safety. And yet the UN is now telling them that they must uphold humanitarian standards towards, uh, uh, towards migrant populations. So there is a sort of deep-seated irony there. Um, on the other hand, the EU demands that uh, countries on its borders maintain very strict border control uh, regimes, uh, that they securitize and, and in some cases militarize their borders. Um, and there is a trade-off here. If countries fail to police adequately police their borders with the EU, they risk visa liberalization. What Western Balkan countries need and want more than anything from the EU is the right to travel freely to the EU that is in jeopardy if they don't police their borders. So this increases the incentives of local police 
if they haven't already been incentivized to take kickbacks from the traffickers, they are incentivized by their superiors to police these borders rigorously by all means necessary uh, in order to not jeopardize the visa liberalization agreements with uh, the EU. So there are ways in which the EU makes the situation worse, not better. Um, if that weren't enough for the Western Balkans, they are facing probably an unprecedented uh, demographic and social crisis. Uh, the numbers of people who want, numbers of young people who want to leave the region is absolutely staggering um, and represents, according to a recent German study, uh, the greatest danger for the future of Southeastern Europe. So in addition to the massive displacements of Balkan populations uh, during that accompanied the wars in the 1990s, we now have this other wave of, of another outflow of, of uh, especially young people. So whereas in Central and Eastern Europe, people are starting to talk about brain circulation, the idea that the 3.5 million uh, Central and East Europeans who uh, left their countries to work in Western Europe, uh, many of which are now circling back. So we have this new phrase, brain circulation, as opposed to brain drain. In the Balkans, we are only talking about brain drain. These young people never want to return. They can't envision any circumstances under which life will improve or the political system will improve to the level that would entice them to, con to, to come back. So in addition to the legacies of war, and perhaps also as a consequence of the legacies of war, uh, we are left with the loss of a generation um, and maybe more than one generation. So uh, this, is, this is really uh, you know, a very, very difficult thing that the region is dealing with. Um, coming to my uh, final slides here, uh, the circling four horses of multiple crises. Um, several commentators have called uh, the, the situation that the EU finds itself in um, sort of analogous to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, I, I won't, be, I won't um, belabor the point. You can find uh, good uh, links to analyses here uh, about how, the, how these multiple crises are affecting uh, the EU. Uh, and cumulatively, they represent nothing short of, a, of an existential crisis. Uh, your students might like to see this movie uh, that has come out, the great European disaster movie. You can rent it for a few euros and show it to your class. I haven't seen the whole thing. I've only seen the trailer. But it might be, again, a way to just start the discussion about what exactly is at stake if the EU fails to find viable solutions to the range of crises uh, that it is faced with. Um, the only takeaway point here that I would, or the only added point I would add to the, the multiple crises that are mentioned in these analyses is that there's also a crisis associated with enlargement that is particularly has a powerful negative impact on the Balkans and the Western Balkans. Because of everything else the EU is facing, enlargement is off the table. Where does that leave these small countries in the Western Balkans? It leaves them completely in limbo at arguably one of the most dangerous times in their history and most vulnerable times in their history. So again, another way in which the EU policies are sort of making the situation worse in that region as opposed uh, to improving the situation. So if we want to, first thing, I, I guess, way to, to think about the East European, you know, final way, actually, if, if, if to situate the East Europeans, um, if we want to understand the lack of solidarity of East European leaders in dealing with uh, a, a solution to the uh, migration crisis, um, it's a reflection of the overarching lack of solidarity in the EU currently. Uh, the pro, you know, the, 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 the East Europeans feel that they've been left in the lurch uh, with respect to Russia by the West Europeans. Uh, Greece feels that it has come under, you know, assault by Germany. Um, European publics, you know, are at odds with their established political elites. So there's there there are fissures and divisions and and oppositions and, and a complete and total absence of solidarity across the entire EU. 
and this is a is a general political, social, cultural atmosphere that makes um, policymaking in any uh, in in resolving any of these crises incredibly difficult. So no solidarity with refugees and mi migrants can be expected, given the absence of solidarity within the EU itself. Is sort of the, the shorthand conclusion. Uh, last slide is, you know, okay, general political science explanations. So I don't think, frankly, that the Central East Europeans are the problem, um, uh, that, that they are the major obstacle to uh, finding a solution to the, the migration crisis. Um, I think the EU itself has contributed to the one part of Eastern Europe that is very problematic, namely the Western Balkans, and that the EU should take greater responsibility for that and help the region deal with uh, the waves of migration that it, that it is faced with. Uh, but from a political science, very neutral political science perspective, what do scholars say about the obstacles, the impediments to uh, a, a rational migration policy? As Professor Pfaff pointed out, Europeans are faced with demographic crisis, you know, and, and they have these young populations at their doorstep who are wanting to come and work and, and, and seek a better life. Why can't they rationally plan for the long term? Um, so he said, well, people respond to short-term incentives. Um, that's true. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, there are certain um, things pointed out to, first of all, the differential impact of economic conditions and labor market conditions. While he's right that overall Europe faces a demographic crisis uh, or demographic shrinkage, uh, declining populations, aging populations, different countries have different, are differently situated along this spectrum. Um, a country like uh, Poland, for example, doesn't feel the sense quite of, of, of demographic decline and aging population, although they, they're getting there as well. Uh, so, so countries have different, um, different conditions, which lead to different priorities, which lead to different incentives um, that they project at the EU level in decision making. Um, different labor market means as well. Institutional issues. Um, this is an interesting, just a totally political science nerd insight uh, by driven from institutionalism. Um, when po policy making on migration is dealt with almost entirely by ministries of the interior. What do ministries of the interior want to do? They want to secure the borders and provide comfort and security for the existing population. Ministers of labor are almost never brought into the discussion of either national immigration policy or EU level immigration policy. Now that's just something so silly and stupid that you'd wonder, you know, but this is just the institutional pathways in which the policies are made and it, it creates an obstacle that the ministries of labor are not brought in. Uh, the existing policy framework, the Dublin agreements, which you probably know a lot about, uh, mandates that countries of entry take responsibility for all the, the, the migrants and the asylum seekers. <coughs> the Dublin three agreements, the Dublin one through three agreements are generally held to be absolutely abysmal, but they're entrenched. They've created winners and losers. Uh, the winners don't want to give up their, their better positions within the Dublin agreements. The losers are you know, agitating to, to, to reform the system, but there are entrenched vested interests now associated with the Dublin agreements, and it's going to be very hard to override those. And finally, the contradictory um, imperatives of the Lisbon Treaty, which is the guiding uh, legal framework for the EU. On the one hand, the treaty mandates that the EU as a whole uh, arrive at a, at a more sensible and rational immigration policy. Uh, on the other hand, it empowers the member states to maintain control over the flows of migrants. So it is a completely contradictory legal framework that does not, it, it, create, it in fact, it creates a stalemate. 
it, it reinforces the stalemate that, that's already uh, present due to a number of different factors. Now, getting out of EU wonky uh, territory, I leave you with um, a discussion question, perhaps, for your classes, who are probably far less interested in the interior, interior workings of the EU machinery. Um, and this is sort of a, a, an analogy with the US, um, a proposed analogy with the US. Is the EU inability or the European inability to, to, to deal rationally uh, with the migration crisis similar to our inability to deal with gun violence? Are there sort of similar social, political, cultural, constitutional factors involved? Um, you know, I, I thought it was an intriguing way to, to, to create a parallel that's maybe more uh, interesting to discuss than to think about our migration policies and European migration policies, uh, immigration policies. I mean, I, that, that's clearly a conventional comparison that, that uh, is, is, is uh, also useful. But I thought this was, uh, because it, it, this gets to the very emotional and, and almost intractable nature of the discussion in Europe um, and, and the deeply stalemated nature of the discussion in a way that I think, you know, simply comparing the US and, and EU uh, immigration policies might not uh, get at. Um, okay, so I, I went way over, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought that was very interesting. Thank you. So as we're switching the slides, I'm just going to say in the way of introduction, I will present my point of view from um, practical approach. So I'm not a scholar, just to be clear, and I'm not an immigration expert. However, I do represent Poland in the state of Washington in the official capacity as an honorary consul. I have worked in Central and Eastern Europe for three years for a large um, IT company, Microsoft. Um, dealing with the Central and Eastern European um, subsidiaries. At the time that the um, eight um, countries were entering the EU in 2004. And um, I also traveled to Poland. I just returned two days ago and I keep very um, uh, constant um, uh, uh, cooperation with my uh, counterparts in Poland. So um, what I'm going to present is really based on my personal experience touching on the issues that we talked about today. And the first, um, first point I wanted to make is that um, Poland, Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia, and uh, so many other countries that came from the um, Eastern Bloc or the um, members of uh, Warsaw Pact really think of themselves as Central Europe. I mean, when you look at the map, um, you know, the that European middle. borders extend to the Ural Mountains. That's the part of, um, you know, European part of Russia that's shown on the map. So um, other than this relation or, um, you know, association with the Soviet bloc after World War II, uh, Poles really like to think about themselves, I like to think about myself as um, Central European, European, and uh, of course, um, Pole. Um, I like what you said. Also, regionally, people like to relate to the area where they're from. So they celebrate the mountain culture, the uh, Missourian culture, the Kashubian culture, and so on. And then Silesia has a very strong regional language and culture. 
but um, uh, as a whole, um, Poland is um, located in Central Europe. You can see uh, on the north, uh, we're bordering with Baltic Sea, and on in the south, um, the natural border with Slovakia is formed through the Carpathian Mountains. And um, after the demise of Soviet Union, now Poland has um, a lot of neighbors. So um, Russia, um, Lithuania, Ukraine, Belarus, Slovakia, uh, Slovakia, Czech Republic, and Hungary, finally. Um, and um, on the eastern side, uh, Poland really protects the border for the EU. So that's where the EU stops. Um, and therefore, um, the borders with Ukraine you know, right now during crisis is, um, um, you know, big challenge for Polish uh, border authorities to uh, to protect those. Just in terms of population and a little bit of history, which we talked a lot today about the historical perspective, but currently there are about 39 million Poles inside the country. But when you look at the Polish population or Polish descent, um, there is about 60 million, estimated 60 million of Poles living in the world. And the reason for that is really going back a couple of centuries is a lot of border shifts, a lot of occupations, a lot of resettlement, forced um, expulsions. And in the recent past, it's really the political and economic migration that has driven all these numbers um, out of the country. So there are about US about 10 million, UK about 800 to a million, depends on the, on the count. Uh, Germany uh, a million and a half. In Brazil, which is interesting, mm -hmm. over a million. In Canada, over a million. Mm -hmm. So for the purpose of today's discussion, I really wanted to cover a couple of points that kind of relate to what we've talked about today, and that is the Poland's perspective, so my perspective, and, and some of this will be my individual opinion, not necessarily represented by, you know, the ministry, but um, I wanted to touch on labor migration after the EU accession, so since 2004. I want to talk about the influx of Ukrainian migrants and citizens coming to Poland after the crisis uh, erupted in, um, in Ukraine, and also what is Poland doing in terms of uh, responding to the refugee crisis in Africa and Middle East, and how has the free movement of people in EU affected the way of life in Poland and for Polish citizens. So um, first, let's talk a little bit about the opening of EU labor markets. and. Um, as I mentioned, I was in Europe at that time preparing a lot of um, policies, internal corporate documents on harmonizing the prices for products and really dealing with um, a lot of um, issues um, because the countries that were entering the EU were a lot um, poorer and they had a different standards in um, in uh, salaries, in um, uh, you know GDP, and so on. So um, when the uh, uh, on, on May 1st, when the accession happened, um, three countries opened up their borders for labor markets right away, and that was UK, Sweden, and Ireland. And Norway. 
And Norway. It's not an EU country, but it also. Opened. Yeah, but that's not an EU, right? So. But it's also, I mean, many polls <laughs> also you. went to Norway. Yeah, of course. So um, I, I wanted to focus a little bit on UK today because um, this is where the most significant number of Polish citizens went to work. Um, and it turns out that um, they were already there, actually. A lot of them were already there because the visas were um, removed three years earlier. And also because Poland has a very strong connection to um, England. That goes back to World War II when the Polish government in exile, when Poland did not exist because it was invaded by Nazi Germany and Soviet um, from the other side, that's when the Polish government in exile existed in, um, in London. And also, a lot of Polish fighters, for about 14,000 Polish pilots, served in the Royal um, Air Force. And they participated in the Battle of Britain. Then when the war ended, unfortunately, they were not even invited to the victory parade. But they stayed. A lot of them decided to move on to America and immigrated to other countries, but uh, a lot of them remained in the resettlement um, refugee camps for a long time and then uh, decided to take on the uh, citizenship and remained in, in the UK. So uh, a lot of cultural and social ethnic organizations, churches were already formed in um, in the 50s and so on. And, and that created a great environment or sort of, um, um, you know, people already knew somebody or they could go and ask for, um, um, you know, language or housing assistance and so on. Currently, as I mentioned, the estimate is about um, uh, one million Poles live and work in the UK. And a lot of the young and educated are leaving. Um, so in the, la in the last maybe 10, 15 years, uh, English uh, instructions or English language instructions became very popular in Poland when I lived there. We did not have that opportunity. I had to study Russian and German. That was my choice. Uh, I mean, my options. Um, but now young and educated Polish uh, professionals can go and get a job in their job, in their profession. Also, um, students, it's very popular for them to go during the summer and work in service and um, wear type jobs, learn English, and then come back and, uh, and be a lot, a lot more marketable. So um, about 82% of registered workers are um, between the age of 18 and 34. That includes students during the summer. Um, the industries where Poles went to work uh, in were initially labor, agriculture, and a lot of construction. Now this is expanding to healthcare, nursing, uh, transportation, a lot of drivers, catering, some management, IT, and uh, services in general. Overall, as far as the um, immigration is concerned following the uh, EU accession, there were um, about 2.3 million Poles that left um, uh, during the peak, so between 
2004 and 2007. That was the first flood of people that left in search of better economic and better jobs uh, situation. That represented about 6.6% of population, um, which is um, quite a lot. And people are still leaving. And um, uh, the government is recognizing that this is an issue. A lot of young people prefer to go and work abroad versus starting a business or uh, getting a job in Poland. So the government is recognizing that this is an issue. And the uh, recently uh, sworn in president, that was last week when I was there on August 6th, Andrzej Duda is the new president of the Republic of Poland. He said, uh, my administration is going to work on this issue and um, address the problem. So um, he um, formed a special cabinet to manage relations with Poles abroad and encouraged them to return to Poland or support the country from where they are, whether this would be through investment or some kind of an exchange um, or starting a business or investing in the business. So um, this is new. We don't know yet um, what specifically this cabinet will do, but it has been um, uh, recognized as, as an issue and the young um, and educated leaving the country. So um, the next um, topic I wanted to talk about is the migration influx from Ukraine. And Arista uh, mentioned that this has really been um, unnoticed. People started coming, uh, and they're coming in big numbers. So uh, right now we're estimating, um, and this is based on uh, the applications that they're filing for either uh, work or residence or enrolling in schools. We're estimating that uh, Ukrainian citizens seeking residence in Poland has doubled in 2005 over the previous years. So um, the situation in Ukraine is not being resolved yet. And so more people are thinking um, we, um, you know, we need to uh, escape the situation. And um, they're getting programs in Poland, such as uh, temporary housing, access to food, work permits. So for example, um, there is a special work, uh, work program that Polish government put together, and that is that uh, people can work for six months within the 12-month period in agriculture and that's legal. So people can come and go and um, um, and uh, have legal status. Also, social services and an accelerated path to Polish citizenship, which means that um, if they reside in Poland for three years versus five years, they can apply for Polish citizenship and dual or triple citizenship is allowed. Um, historically, the the, the uh, borders um, had shifted, so a lot of the current territory of Ukraine was Polish. Therefore, there is a lot of Polish citizens or Polish um, people with Polish um, families or roots 
that live there. Therefore, they can come and claim that um, bloodline and receive their papers. Also, um, the government has undertaken some resettlement uh, actions from East Ukraine, where the fighting's been um, the worst, and um, they've organized um, um, transportation and, and um, ways to get Polish citizens uh, evacuated from uh, Donbas and um, the fighting uh, areas, uh, where in from the areas where the fighting continues. So. Um, the uh, Ukrainian citizens uh, are integrated into the Polish society. There's a lot of cultural similarities. They have, like I mentioned, um, similar roots or similar um, traditions, and um, they're welcomed. So um, because this integration is sort of seamless, it's natural. They're coming, and they always find a way to um, either reunite with their uncles or, or families or be helped by uh, social services. Um, this has not been um, uh, recognized by Western media or, um, you know, not talked about, not, not boasted about. Also, um, just from the personal perspective, I, I was just in Krakow this summer, and uh, my son was taking a Polish language intensive course in Krakow. Um, and about 40% of students were Ukrainians. So they're um, coming to Poland, and they intend to study or go to Polish school starting in September, but um, they were being trained um, uh, at this at this particular language center to, to be ready. So so that is going on. And then as far as the um, response to ref the refugee crisis in Africa and Middle East, um, I agree with the point you made um, that uh, Poland is just not very familiar with um, the culture, with the um, Geography, just uh, it, it's it's sort of something that that has not uh, been on the radar. So in general, um, there is no strategy, no state strategy concerning an integration. Poland is a very homogeneous society. Only about two percent currently, or one between between one and two percent, are foreigners. And um, this was just not something that um, the country was dealing with. There is some historical issues or background that, um, that could explain that, but uh, we probably don't have time to go into it. Um, I would just mention one thing is that, um, you know, Poland remained behind the Iron Curtain. The movement of people was very restricted, even going from one town to another. Uh, people who lived in Poland during the, those times didn't even think about going to Czech Republic, right? <laughs> Crossing the border was like, it may not happen in my lifetime, but um, eventually borders opened up. So um, because there was a lot of persecution, poverty, and, and the economy was, uh, you know, socialist economy, I mean, if people had a chance to escape, they escaped, and that was a one-way ticket. No one was thinking about coming back, and certainly 
um, there was not much uh, exploration uh, during the imperial times. So there was no, um, uh, no uh, connection with Africa and Middle East. But um, due to the current refugee crisis from Africa and Middle East and the fact that European Commission imposed mandatory quotas based on countries' GDP and population, um, voluntary quotas. Poland, mandatory, were, mandatory was rejected, um, so that the voluntary. Poland is still looking at ways to mm -hmm. support it. There was um, not much enthusiasm, so there was sort of like, oh, you know, like, what do we do with this? And there was a lot of criticism and not really knowing how to react to this uh, voluntary um, quota, but um, at the last um, writing or reading, <laughs> I um, I can report that um, Poland is working on preparing some proce uh, procedures and legal aspects and, and housing because um, the country didn't know even how to deal with um, uh, with refugees. And like you said, you know the borders are now open. So how are we going to keep them here? Um, they can just buy a ticket and drive, or rent a, or buy a car and go to Germany, and and so on. Um, but um, the migration policy is still being formed. In uh, 2012, so only three years ago, the government approved a document which is called the Migration Policy of Poland: the Current State and Further Actions. So um, the country is recognizing that there is uh, a need and um, um, and and this is a process that you can't really turn <laughs> turn back. So uh, the uh, the process of integration is taking place, and and therefore um, they're discussing it. And um, as a first step. Um, 150 Syrian Christian refugees landed in Poland just last month, which was um, um, based on um, based on the fact that um, uh, the, the reason that Poland requested or, or accepted um, uh, Syrian refugees. Uh, they 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 ask for Christian mm -hmm. refugees because the country oh, is town not similar. Yeah, yeah, similar, um, you know, Catholic Christian cult, uh, religion. So, so they arrived and they're being um, already trained in Polish language, which is not going that well. <laughs> it's very hard. And then um, Poland is also considering absorbing 2,000 refugees, um, uh, although the um, although that's fewer than the 3,600 that the commission had uh, suggested the country will take. So um, so that is still in very, very early stages, but it's in the process of um, discussions. And then finally, I wanted to um, paint a little bit of a picture what this free movement of people um, created for citizens who are willing to travel, who are willing to move for a better job, um, who are thinking about retiring in a better climate, 
And certainly, um, being part of the EU, the mobility for Central and Eastern Europeans had increased. And you can see that while you travel in Europe based on languages spoken, based on um, just anecdotal discussions with people where they've been and how the travel industry has um, organized so many different tours and trips into various parts of Europe. So, so the movement of people, because there are no borders uh, within the Schengen area, has really increased and people have that ability to go and uh, search for work or apply for you know, college in a different country and search for higher standards of living or find a place for retirement. So I personally know some folks who bought a house in Spain and plan to retire there. Um, but this goes both ways. So Poland had also seen a lot of Western Europeans coming for uh, recreational opportunities as well as investment and uh, tourism overall. Even weekend trips from Dublin and London for you know, um, bachelor parties and, and such. So um, it really is the flow, um, free movement of people goes both ways. And that's why I wanted to uh, finish on this intra-European migrants, people within the EU having the ability to move. Um, that includes um, the countries, uh, in addition to EU, Iceland, uh, Norway, Liechtenstein, and Switzerland. So for a total of 31 countries, if uh, people have the, the passports from those countries, they're automatically allowed to enter and um, study or work there. So um, I wanted to leave you with a question, and, and this is still an answer unanswered question because the 500 million people that live in the EU um, and have the free movement or, or the freedom to, to move um, is really the best research laboratory on the transnational migration and, um, and how this even became possible. I mean, these countries were very uh, sovereign or they had their own borders and protected their borders and states and now you know with the eu process and the accession obviously which is um at times controversial they gave up their borders and opened it up and to what end and to what extent so that's only the future will show i think and also the correct policies and um cooperation between all the states that are involved. That concludes my personal presentation. And I think we have a few minutes for questions. I know we're kind of getting behind schedule in general, but What is an honorary council? <laughs> this is a, an appointed representative for the country that I represent, Poland. Um, to participate in any official ceremonies between Poland and U.S. to help promote um, educational, business, and cultural exchanges between both countries. 
Are is you it, a dual citizen? Yes. Is it is, is it paid? No. No, it's an uh, it's a citizenship. Citizen type. It's unpaid. Civic. Yeah. Doing. Unpaid. Yes. Um, these are personal, so you don't have to answer. But um, you mentioned that you didn't have an opportunity to learn English, but your English is excellent. And so, how did you end up in America and and back and forth? And um, you I was a, a political refugee myself. So I uh, I um, lived in Poland in um, 1981 and um, uh, became involved with the student. Solidarity movement. Then, during the martial law, I was um, basically uh, forced to leave. Mm -hmm. So you've been there since the 80s, then? Yes, 82. I arrived in the U.S. in 82 in June. Wow. Yeah, and I've learned uh, English um, in real life. So um, you know, by working right away, and also continued my education at UW. So I'm a UW alumni. And, and what do you think of being, because you were essentially a refugee yourself then? Yeah. I'm very thankful for the programs and the uh, support that I've received. You were treated well then? Well, maybe not, not treated well, but I was um, given the opportunity for sure. So that's why I'm giving back. I believe that if you're given the opportunity, such as um, education, you know, legal rights to work, to um, you know, have roof over your head, then you can make it. Anyone else? Can you define the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker? Is there one? The best place to look for that is probably the UN conventions because mm -hmm. they, they, that would be the, the absolute mm -hmm. authority on that. Mm -hmm. um, my guess is it's a legal distinction. Refugee is more all-encompassing. It just means sort of someone who's displaced, um, but it has a connotation of like for, due to political uh, uh, persecution. Asylum is like the legal act of, asylum seeker is someone who's actually taking the legal steps Mm -hmm. Has you know it has 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 set foot in a country and is is undertaking the legal process of receiving, uh, you know the legal status of being there as a as a ref as a political. But also fleeing fleeing a circumstance that would uh, endanger their lives. Though, right. 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 Which a refugee doesn't necessarily have that particular problem. Uh, I think they often go hand in they hand. They often go hand in hand. It's just that refugee okay. is like just the more common. They haven't done the, the paperwork. They haven't yeah, done the paperwork. Yeah. So if you were an asylum seeker, you the technical you've, you've, you've applied okay. for mm -hmm. right. the legitimate right to reside in this new country by reason of right. fear, fear of, of, return. of fear of return. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Just one more. This is just a really basic. I'm just asking because you're here. I, what is the exact process? Like, let's say I'm a Syrian refugee and I land in Greece. Mm -hmm. What, like, what do I go through before I'm sort of turned loose in the EU, or am I turned loose? You're not turned loose. Okay, so could you just You're not turned loose yourself? officially, but the Greek, okay. the Greek state is basically collapsing. So, so there's their ability to control is is. Okay, um, I'm just trying to understand. Okay. 
if, if you, oh gosh, there's so many different categories, but let's say you are one of the people in the boats, you know, just sure. sort of, you're, you're, you've yes. arrived irregularly, uh, okay. you haven't been invited to apply, because there are two different categories of people that we need to talk about. The mandatory, or the, which was now turned into a voluntary distribution of asylum seekers, those are not really dealing with the people in the boats that are coming or that are, are, are coming illegally across the Balkan territory. These are people in the detention centers and refugee camps uh, in Turkey, in Lebanon, um, and elsewhere that EU officials are processing or national officials are processing. Um, and they are saying, okay, we invite you here to apply. If we think you have a legitimate claim for asylum, we German, the German government, Greenlight you, you can fly to Germany and continue the process of legitimately applying for asylum. And so, each um, all countries decide on their own how many people they want to take through this legitimate process of, of granting asylum or granting the right to, to apply for asylum. But say you arrive through these trafficking networks. Yeah. Uh, you haven't been vetted in a, in a properly vetted in a, in a, in a, in a detention facility. Um, you, you paid traffickers, you arrived in Hungary or you arrived in Spain. The Dublin Accords mandate that the country of entry is responsible for you. So Hungary or Spain, they are required to feed, house you as humanely as possible um, and uh, you are required to um, um, apply for asylum, for legal asylum in that country. Um, that itself is a long process. If you are successful, and the rates of success for asylum seekers is, is varies by country, but is universally very low outside of Sweden and Germany. Sweden and Germany are the most generous in accepting asylum applications. Um, but say you are successful, you've been granted asylum in Spain or Hungary, the EU requirements then are that you have to reside and work in that country for, I believe, it's five, six years before you are given this final green light to be able to 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 uh, enjoy the freedom of movement across the Schengen space. So you you are, they they really do want to force people, asylum seekers, to stay put in that initial country of entry. And you can imagine that this is disproportionately. Putting a disproportionately putting a burden on these countries of entry, which is why they are so passionately trying to, you know, get a mandatory reallocation process going, which is now voluntary, but it's a it's it's a drop in the ocean in terms of what they are facing. You know, Hungary alone has got 80,000, um, uh, you know, potentially 80,000 asylum seekers arriving, and and has to process them, and has to and has to house them, and and. Um, and they're not doing a good job of it, um, but neither is Greece. And the Italians and the, the Italians just sort of have, are famous for just giving people uh, train tickets, <laughs> saying, you know, <laughs> carry on to Germany, <laughs> carry on, carry on, you know. Um, and and uh, the Greeks have been doing the same thing, is trying to just give get get give people tickets, get them get them to because. The Greeks and the Italians themselves know that the people don't want to stay there. They, they have networks, they have communities, they have labor markets that they that they want to go to elsewhere in Europe. So let's say that did happen. Could I then present myself for asylum in Germany? Let's say Italy was just like, whatever, take a train to go and go. Could I then present myself for asylum in Germany? Or are they going to be like, how did you get here? You have to, this is very difficult, you have to burn all papers. You have to play dumb. If it, and they will do their utmost in Germany to try to yeah, figure yeah. out which countries you transited. Mm -hmm. And if they figure out where you transited, they send you right back. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
and so just as Germany can send people back to uh, Italy or Greece or Spain, and Italy and Greece and Spain can't send them back to Egypt or anywhere, Turkey. No, they do their best to send them back to Turkey. Well, Morocco, to Tunisia. The EU is famous and EU member states, but the EU collectively signs uh, and, and fiercely negotiates readmission treaties. Turkey was a lone holdout, but recently caved. So um, almost all countries bordering the EU are forced to take people back. Russia, Ukraine, Turkey, Serbia, anybody, they're forced to take them back. And what happens to them if they return then? Um, it's not their problems, they circle back. There are only a handful of countries where the EU will not automatically send people back. Syria, Afghanistan, Eritrea, um, and, and, and that's why the Commission was focusing on Syrian refugees and Eritrean refugees because it's clear there that they cannot be sent back to their country of origin and even their countries of transit, let's say they traverse Turkey, are overwhelmed you know, with, with, with uh, Syrian refugees. So, so it was this whole reallocation was designed explicitly with um, Syrians and Eritreans uh, and Afghanis, Afghanistan, um, Afghanis involved in mind. So, so the, citizens, the people of Greece don't automatically have to take these refugees? I was a, no, 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 they, they do. They do. They, they currently do, but that's why the but it's a dysfunctional system, so that's why the commission was trying to put into place this mandatory reallocation. They can send them back and they do send them back? But not to Syria. But yeah, 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 yeah. They can't send. It's murky. Um, it's it's murky. Question whether the Greek authorities are really, really trying to find out whether you're from Afghanistan, Eritrea, or Syria, or whether they're just sending you back to Turkey, um, and then letting the Turks figure it out. But 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 there should they shouldn't. If anyone who comes from Syria, Eritrea, or um, Afghanistan should have automatic standing asylum. to apply for asylum, mm -hmm. but in the country where they first arrived. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, I think that Italy, for example, is overwhelmed with the number of people, and as we've heard, and um, they've been just rescuing people, and they were not prepared to, mm -hmm. you know, sort of take them in as asylum seekers, and, and they've been waving their hand to the European Commission help us do something for some time. And I know that, for example, mm -hmm. from my colleague, the Italian consul. And um, this has been just something that they cannot handle themselves. They're, they've been asking for help mm -hmm. for some time. Yeah. And the Greeks need help, and the Hungarians need help, and the Bulgarians mm -hmm. need help. Every, all of the, the countries that, that are on the periphery of the EU are desperately mm -hmm. looking for help. But mm -hmm. the, the, the Dublin system, as dysfunctional as, as it is, as I mentioned at the end, it's entrenched, and it has vested interests now. Like, you know, other countries don't really have an interest, other front, non-frontline countries don't have an interest in changing the system, Yeah. you know, because the system works for them, unfortunately. Isn't in some circumstances that it breaches the 1951 UN Convention on Refugees because they are sending people back without processing them? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's why the, the EU, um, both collectively and individual EU countries, have come under such heavy scrutiny, not only by the Council of Europe's Commissioner for Human Rights, um, but also by for the UN Commissioner on, on Refugees. Um, Amnesty International. There's a whole host of sort of international law uh, mm -hmm. concerns that are that are 
very much being articulated and also a very good thing for students to research in your classes. Students tend to like international law, these kinds of international organizations, the extent to which these international conventions are being upheld or undermined. Mm -hmm. So it's a great, great research project to sort of look through the UN documents, the Council of Europe documents, and Amnesty International, try to figure out where the problems are, where the breaches in these conventions and international um, agreements are, and then how they might be solved, how, how they might be addressed. Um, I, I know students like to find positive solutions to these kinds of situations. They want to, you know, I see that in my own classes, right? They want to be able to figure out how can this be improved, you know, what can be done, at least in theory, even if it's difficult politically. And you um, like, well, it wasn't the Marshall Plan, but you mentioned the, the that essentially we're that some of the UN and those um, organizations are trying to work in those other countries and build their countries up and so that they have a place to, a better place mm -hmm. to go or stay mm -hmm. and um, how is how much is being done there um, well, the volume of aid, um, development assistance, humanitarian assistance that the EU puts out, both collectively and individual, like I said, it's the world's largest. Um, so the volume of aid is very high and has sustained relatively high levels even throughout the, the Eurozone crisis and, and the, the global downturn, um, economic downturn. But the problem is the effectiveness of that aid. You know, how if, and that's a huge discussion in the international development community, right? The UN is just reconsidering, you know, its development goals, uh, you know, and, and so here the EU and, and the European countries are just one part of a much broader global discussion of how more effectively to target um, development assistance and humanitarian assistance so that they actually have lasting effects um, in, in countries, uh, specifically in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so th that's more of a global conversation, I think, and the Europeans are definitely interested in participating um, because they, there is a, like I said, the European response to this crisis is interdiction um, and uh, trying to get at root causes. But that's, you know, trying to keep, stem sort of this tide this, of, of young, you know, people who want to, to um, work in Europe. So we'll see how effective they are able to target their assistance. But right now, the, for the most part, the wave that's, that the crisis is being driven by um, things that are intractable, uh, situations that are intractable, Syria, Afghanistan, and Eritrea. There's nothing there. I mean, you know, the, that, that is the majority right now of, 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 of migrants that we're seeing. Um, they're the drivers right now of this spike. Uh, in, um, the, the North Africans, uh, the Sub-Saharan African movements, they have been ongoing for decades. And, and, and that's not quite what's driving this, this mm -hmm. spike right now. Um, and the conditions on these ships are um, sure. very, very bad. And, and there's a certain level of corruption involved as sure. well, you know. Exactly, to get on those boats. So, um, you know, some of them barely make it to mm -hmm. the shore. Yeah. And then, you know, they have to really be rescued. And that's why we've heard so many of them drowned and have not really been put in the bed um, at spot. But um, now we'll see. So we'll see how this whole plays out. Thank you. Unfortunately, we have to move on. Yeah. So